Cape Town. It could become the first major city in the world to run out of water. Cape Town, South Africa is inching closer now to day zero. It's just 92 days away from having to shut off most water taps because of a severe drought. Cape Town is the first major city in the world to plan to indefinitely shut off its water supply. Sydney water is pushing for a 15% hike over four years, putting more pressure on family budgets. This drive for water conservation, water saving, is now a burden that poor people must carry. Living on a fixed income, I cannot afford any of this. Water advisories are issued to warn people not to drink their water when it's thought to be unsafe. There are three types of water advisories, but boil water advisories are by far the most common. When Prime Minister Justin Trudeau took office, he promised to end long-term boil water advisories by 2021. So not all water advisories, just ones that have been in place for more than a year. I've never had access to clean drinking water. I'm uh, 50 years old. Chief Chris Munias is calling for a complete overhaul of the water system, saying the current situation can't continue. Water is life. We can go weeks without food, but only a couple of days without water. For a really long time in human history, clean water access was one of the major factors in determining where people settled. This is still true in part. With technology, some of the challenges that come with a lack of easy water access can be overcome, but this is limited to very wealthy countries because of the energy and infrastructure required. However, even in places that are surrounded by water, like Canada, Getting clean water to people is a massive undertaking. Most people don't think twice about what happens behind the scenes to make that happen and take the privilege of clean water on demand for granted. In this episode, we discuss water security and the factors at play, including climate change, the geographical region, and the systemic inequalities in water accessibility faced by Indigenous communities. And as you'll soon hear, the value of education and technologies as part of the solution. I'm Colleen. And I'm Yignesh. Welcome to episode 87 of Raw Talk Podcast. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge that Toronto was founded on the traditional territory of many Indigenous nations, including the Mississaugas, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Huron-Wendat. This meeting place is still home to many First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people, and we're grateful for the opportunity to live and work on this land. As we explore the stories of medical science, we also ask our listeners to learn about and reflect on the long history of science and medicine as tools of oppression against Indigenous peoples, and the complex perception of and barriers to healthcare that are still experienced by Indigenous people in Canada today. We also acknowledge that the team behind this episode is made up of non-Indigenous peoples, and we are not able to feature an Indigenous speaker. So while the episode covers issues facing many Indigenous communities, we urge our listeners to be cognizant of this gap of lived experience. Most parts of you know North America, certainly the United States and, and Canada, we have great infrastructure. So we take for granted that we can just go to the tap and turn it on and water will come out. But there's actually a tremendous amount of infrastructure that goes behind that. Think about it. You might have to build a dam and store water behind a reservoir. And then that water has to be treated and then distributed through infrastructure, through, you know, pipes throughout a city and delivered to your home. And it all has to be done in a timely, reliable fashion. And it has to be clean. 
We spend a tremendous amount of money to heat, treat, and transport water. I mean, water's super heavy. Um, it has a really high heat capacity, so it just takes a lot of energy to, to heat it and, and move it around. And so when you are leaving your tap on, when you're brushing your teeth, that's not just water. You know, it's, it'd be one thing if you just went down to the river with a bucket and pulled it up to your house. Fine. Okay, but it's another thing when it runs through the infrastructure, it becomes very expensive and very wasteful. And so in these time periods and in these regions around the world where you have water scarcity, then it becomes very wasteful and very expensive and a drain not only on the water supply, but on the energy supply, too. Nearly three quarters of the Earth's surface is covered in water. That might make you think that there's enough water to sustain human and environmental needs, no matter where you are in the world. However, this is far from the case, since water that's safe for consumption makes up a minuscule fraction of all the water on Earth. The World Economic Forum now routinely identifies water crises as one of the top 10 risks facing the world, both in likelihood and impact. To help us understand how, when it comes to water security, there is less, not more, than meets the eye. We spoke with Dr. Jay Famlietti, Executive Director of the Global Institute for Water Security at the University of Saskatchewan. I have been working for a long time using satellites to track how fresh water availability is changing all over the world. Um, and it's painting a pretty grim picture. And so one of the things that uh, I'm trying to work on personally in my research is taking action on uh, the picture that we see and how we can somehow mitigate it or adapt and plan for a more water insecure future. What do you mean when you say water secure? Well, there are a lot of different uh, definitions of water security. The one that I like to use is a pretty simple one, and that is can a region provide a reliable supply of potable water to its, its population both now and, and into the future to do all the things that it, it wants to do. And so let's just break that down a little bit. Reliable is becoming more challenging with changing extremes due to climate change. Potable, of course, means, means drinkable. That can be a challenge in places that don't have the sufficient water quality or that don't have the treatment. Both now and into the future, we have to be thinking about population growth and of course, climate change. And to do all the things that a region wants to do. What are the things that we use water for? Grow food, for cities, for economic growth, for the environment. So there's a lot of different things that have to be balanced to produce energy. It's becoming a challenge, especially in water scarce regions. So we're essentially surrounded by water as Canada is bordered by three oceans. What is the water supply like in Canada? Yeah, right. And you know, there's this myth of an infinite water supply in Canada. We have a lot of water, that's for sure. But there are a couple of aspects to that. There's the water that we see, which is on the surface, and we receive that water from rainfall and from snow, and that gets to the variability in climate, and that's becoming much less predictable. So in, in different places around Canada, the extremes are changing, the timing of rainfall is changing, we may see across Canada that we get more in the spring and more in the fall, less in the summer. So timing issues are, are a problem. Um, and then there's the water that we can't see, which is the groundwater. And that's largely unmanaged, which is a problem, right? Because you can't really manage and sustain what we're, what we're not measuring and what we're not monitoring. The other aspect of what most people, I think, kind of take for granted or don't even realize is how polluted the surface water can be and how contaminated the groundwater can be. So, 
you know, it looks great when you're flying over Canada in a plane, but when you get on the ground, there are real problems. In 2018, Dr. Famlietti co-authored a paper in the journal Nature titled Emerging Trends in Global Freshwater Availability. It was the first paper to quantify observational water storage trends on a global scale. Dr. Famlietti told us how he and his team used satellites to observe water availability around the world. So just a little background on that paper. So that was actually the culmination of almost 20 years of work. So we started preparing for the launch of a NASA satellite called GRACE, which stands for Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment. We used data from this mission, the GRACE mission, which ran from 2002 to, to 2017. And we were able to map out the regions of the world that are gaining or losing water. Well, we could map it out every month for those 15 years that the GRACE mission flew. A little bit of background on the GRACE mission is really different than a typical satellite, just in simple terms. When we think about satellites, we think about satellites that sort of function as cameras that are essentially taking pictures of the ground. We think about satellites that maybe function like some other kind of monitor, like a thermometer, sensing the temperature or other emissions from the surface. GRACE is more like a scale. The reason it works like a scale is that water is very heavy. And as it moves around the globe, the mass uh, distribution of water on the Earth is shifting around. So it might be wet on you know, one hemisphere and drier in another hemisphere. And then that might change with, with the seasons or with climate oscillations. And when that water mass moves around, you're actually affecting the gravity field, right? And so more mass on the ground means a greater gravitational tug. Less mass on the ground means less of a gravitational tug. So more water mass, say, because of a huge snowstorm in Toronto or less water mass because of ice melting in British Columbia. When there's more water mass on the ground, the gravitational tug on the satellite is actually greater, pulls the satellites a little bit closer to the ground. It's like the surface of a scale moving up and down. It goes up when there's less mass, it goes down when there's more mass. And so by very accurately keeping track of the position of the satellites, the ups and downs of the scale, so to speak, we're able to put together these maps. So we produced a map that was really the, the first of its kind ever that revealed this picture of just how rapidly the distribution of fresh water on the earth is changing. So how is water availability changing globally? We see these broad patterns we think are related to climate change. For example, the high latitudes, the boreal forests in Canada, for example, getting wetter and the tropics getting wetter. And in between, all around the world, the mid-latitudes getting drier. And then on top of that background pattern, we see these hotspots for either too much water flooding in the upper Missouri River Basin and up into Alberta and Saskatchewan, or too little water, the disappearance of groundwater from the world's major aquifer systems like the Central Valley in California. And it paints this really compelling picture of water insecurity all over the world. And, you know, I mentioned the rates. So what it's really telling us is the rates at which things are changing. And the rates are, are quite alarming. It's happening way faster than, than society is prepared for. And the broad background climate change pattern, we think it's related to climate change. We only have 15 years of data, so we can't say yet. But it is a pattern that's expected from because of climate change. We are seeing that that pattern hasn't really changed over the time period that we've been looking at the data. 
remember water doesn't really disappear in our planet it just moves around from one place to another and so these regions these mid-latitude regions that are drying they're providing more water vapor into the atmosphere so that ends up being redistributed in the atmospheric circulation and the end result is we're getting more rainfall at high latitudes and at low latitudes so canada is absolutely expected to get more precipitation but the challenge that we will face in adapting to it is that is the timing is the variability we're expecting to have way more precipitation falling in the spring and the fall and that means more flooding and we're expecting to see less in the summertime and so that means in terms of say irrigation we may end up having water shortages in the summer because the timing of the rainfall has moved to the spring and the fall so the water in our streams won't be there when we need it in the summer to water crops can we pinpoint what's causing these changes in water availability Climate change driven by humans, the changing extremes are part of climate change, which is driven by humans. And of course the ice melt is a definite climate change feature and the groundwater depletion is something we're choosing to do. So that's human. So it's all, you know, the human fingerprint on the freshwater landscape is so recognizable that, you know, it's time for us to act. So I think people often forget or don't, not they forget, they're just not really aware that a lot of what we talk about with climate change has to do with water. Is, is it going to rain more or is it going to rain less? Are we going to have more flooding or are we going to have more drought? Is the ice melting? Is the permafrost thawing? Is the snow disappearing? Sea level rise. Those are some of the major things that we talk about with climate change. That's, that's all water. So anything that we can do to slow that down will increase our water security because why? Well, if we have less variable climate, then it's going to be less flooding and less drought and easier to manage our water. If we have a slower rate of sea level rise, which is driven by melting freshwater, then we'll be able to adapt to it more. If the rate at which our glaciers are disappearing slows down, then that will sustain our rivers and our water supplies, because that's where a lot of the water comes from, especially in arid parts of the world ice melt and snow melt that recharges our groundwater will be able to sustain it over a longer period of time. Are you optimistic about the current water crisis and the impacts of climate change on water availability? I think it depends on what day you ask me. So I think we have huge challenges. I guess I'm, I'm not overly optimistic. You know, when I'm realistic about what I see, and I've been talking about it, and doing all kinds of science communication at all levels from the United Nations down to the local church. I would stand out at my front doorstep and, and talk about this if, if people would listen, but it's too cold here. And I don't really see things moving that quickly. It's really difficult. And you know, I just don't think we're there yet. I think on issues, many issues related to water quality, we're, we're doing okay, we could be doing better. But I think in addressing these broad patterns that I'm talking about, I'm not optimistic that we're going to change. I'm, I'm sorry, I wish I could be more optimistic, but I'm just not. We should be clear that, you know, it's happening fast, but it didn't just start happening, right? It's been happening for a long time. It's just that we're finally seeing the rates and we have these 15 years of data 
and we see that the rates are pretty fast. But some of this stuff has been happening for a very long time. The groundwater depletion in these aquifers has been happening for, for decades. The climate change part will only change at the pace with which we can impact climate change. And so we kind of know how that's going. And that's going pretty slowly. Where we can have more impact is on the, the water management stuff and specifically the groundwater depletion. These are societal decisions. These are provincial decisions, state decisions, regional, local decisions on, on how much groundwater to use. And that's the part that I'm focused on because I think there we can affect change. And what can be done about this? I think the smaller your area, the easier it is to have water security, and, you know, with, within limits. But, you know, I, I, I think it's not as difficult to have water secure province. It becomes more difficult when you look at the whole country. And so there are some important steps. So let's use Canada, you know, in the United States, there's a lot of uh, parallels there. United States doesn't have a national water policy. Canada has a Canada Water Act that is something like 25 or 35 years old and really outdated. It doesn't even address climate change. The United States doesn't really have a national water agency. It has many agencies that are responsible for different things. Canada doesn't have a national water agency. You know, some things just need federal oversight. And I use the COVID response in the United States as an example. There's no real federal oversight. And so you've got this patchwork of state policies and you know it's it's not working and and the cases are going up exponentially so we see a similar thing with water here in canada we need federal guidance and guidelines for drinking water enforceable for drinking water standards we need someone looking after all of these these dams all across the country that are that are so old and some of them are like phantom dams no one knows who is responsible we need federal oversight to make sure we've got access and clean water and water treatment plants that actually work in our First Nations and our indigenous population. You need these larger scale entities to enforce that. You know, another big one that I didn't mention is this crazy dumping of the 200 billion liters of raw sewage every year into the ocean. I mean, that's, that's crazy. That needs federal policy. We need to do a better job communicating our science and communicating it to our elected officials and environmental managers and policymakers so they know what's going on and, and they know what's important. I think a third thing that we, I mean, we absolutely have to be addressing the extremes and preparing for those changing extremes because they're gonna be difficult to manage our way through. And I think the fourth thing is of surface water and groundwater, starting to think about managing those together we typically just manage surface water and use groundwater as a backstop. And you can do that for a while until the groundwater starts to disappear. And so then you're tapping into your future generations backstop. It's, it's the resilience of future generations. So we have to start managing those two together. So we just heard a lot about the future of freshwater availability globally and nationally. But as you probably already know, water insecurity is a pressing issue today, right now. And water insecurity doesn't affect us all equally. Many developed nations can afford the cost of purifying ocean water through desalination and other energy and resource intensive technologies. But many other nations cannot. However, this lack of infrastructure and resources is not just an issue in developing countries. To learn more about what's being done to tackle the challenges faced by indigenous communities in Canada, we spoke to Dr. Majid Mohseni, 
a professor in the Department of Chemical and Biological Engineering at the University of British Columbia, and the scientific director of the Rezo Center of Mobilizing Innovation. The general area of my research is on water quality and treatment, but more specifically, I focus on addressing drinking water quality issues facing small, rural, and indigenous communities. This is done through researching novel technologies that not only respond to emerging contaminants in our water, uh, but also are appropriate for the community settings and can be implemented successfully, leading to sustainable and long-lasting positive outcomes for the communities. So as part of my academic role, I have also been leading a national network program originally funded by NSERC, or Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council of Canada, as part of their strategic network program. And more recently, as of two years ago, as part of the Networks of Centers of Excellence program. And the program that uh, I am involved and I'm leading is called Rezo Center for Mobilizing Innovation. So the mandate of uh, our program is to generate new knowledge and mobilize innovation for strengthening and supporting indigenous communities' self-government and self-determination goal, as well as rural water health and sustainability. Water inaccessibility is an issue across Canada, but disproportionately affects First Nation communities. Can you tell us about some of the contributors to uh, water insecurity in these communities? So while it's totally unacceptable, in my view, to have some, some of our indigenous communities without safe and clean drinking water, as I mentioned, the issue is beyond that and is a challenge for many of our fellow citizens. If you look at it, nearly 20% of our population live in rural communities and significant number of them have the same challenge. So it's totally unacceptable, uh, in my view, for a developed world to have this situation. So now to your question as why so many of our indigenous communities having this issue, um, meaning water insecurity or inaccessibility. Well, the answer is not really simple. Unfortunately, there are many policies and practices that have been in place for decades. And those relate to how the society in general and the government in particular have treated indigenous people. The approach has been to impose policies, rules and solutions to indigenous people and communities without much regard for or to their culture, values, ways of life, local knowledge, and even things that matter to them, including the fact that they want to be involved in the development of solutions. They want to be part of it. They don't want to be told what to do. In my view, while and often the government is blamed for these, and that's partly true, but unfortunately, many parts of our society, especially businesses, have gone along with this policy. In other words, projects go ahead in the absence of community input and without their involvement. And when this happens, many things could go wrong. The solution may not be appropriate for the particular community. It might be a great technology for a city or a big community, but 
totally wrong one for the specific communities that is designed or implemented. And when that happens, the community doesn't accept it. They want to have some influence in what is happening in their communities. In other words, as they say, nothing for us without us, really. Dr. Moseni also stressed the importance of properly trained personnel in addition to community-advised infrastructure that is required to clean water. I would say operators. They are really the heroes for what happens to, to us in terms of getting the drinking water. Often we don't recognize their values, the values that they bring to us on a day-to-day basis. So if I just say one thing about that, it is just the role of the water operators that they play in ensuring that our water is safe. And that's basically true for large cities and small cities equally. In small communities, they are equally heroes and their challenge is even more because they are not paid properly. They are often involved in multiple tasks and that brings significant challenge for them as well. The operators, since they are the ones who are day and night involved in the operation of the water treatment plant, they know how things could go wrong. They know their system best. They know their source waters. So we need to get all the information from them. And when I say get them involved is at the earliest stage, that's what I mean, is really get them to tell us what it takes, what what is the challenge with them, what are the different aspects related to their water systems. So they can be involved in terms of providing us the information, educating us about what the situation is and how we need to go about addressing those challenges. But as we are developing the solutions, whether we are implementing an existing technology or when, whether we are developing a new technology, we need to keep their capacity in mind as well. We need to make sure that they know what type of solutions we are developing for them so they are aware of it. They are trained properly in order to operate effectively. In addition to the importance of operators, we learned about the training process and the use of education as part of the solution from someone who takes on this tremendous effort. We spoke with John Miller, the founder of the charity Water First, which collaborates with Indigenous communities to address water challenges by training and providing education to community members. He tells us how Water First's mission has changed since they first started. To be honest, like one of the one of the bigger reasons why we got into the field of working with Indigenous communities in Canada was that I kept being asked by smart Canadians why we were flying all the way to Uganda to find water challenges to, to help address when right here in Canada there were so many water challenges in Indigenous communities. And um, I'll be honest, I got pretty tired of not having a very good answer. And so we experimented with some different models, you know, and and as a small NGO, we needed to be very careful about our capacity. And and it's a very complex field, of course. Anyway, we experimented with a a handful of different models and we went all in to to work with First Nations. Uh, There's amazing organizations doing really important work abroad. May that continue. And unfortunately, in my opinion, there's not enough of Canadian civil society working in partnership with First Nations communities, uh, not only on water issues, uh, that's certainly the case, but a, a variety of issues. We work exclusively in an education and training capacity. We're not fixing a water treatment plant. We are training young Indigenous adults and supporting them to enter the field 
of, uh, of water treatment, of environmental water stewardship and management, so that those capacities are better supported locally for sustainable water resource management, uh, both in terms of drinking water and environmental water resources. As of December 1st, 2020, there are currently 59 long-term drinking water advisories across 41 First Nations communities right here in Canada. This is despite the fact that the Government of Canada has promised to end all long-term drinking water advisories in First Nations communities by 2021. There's a deplorable history between Indigenous communities and the rest of Canada and, and non-Indigenous Canadians and governments over the years, over, over centuries. There's, you know, just until a few years ago, First Nations communities had to navigate a very complex uh, systems uh, to even operate on a regular basis. If you're drawing your water from you know, a lake or a river, for instance, Health Canada was involved with the ongoing testing of the water. Indigenous services was involved when it came to infrastructure. And so even for most of us in the South, engaging with complex layers of government is really challenging. There, there are like high paid consultants who help provide those services because it's a really complex space to engage with, let alone you're, you're in a remote northern community struggling with a broken down infrastructure that is with a, a host of, of challenges. Many of them are legacy challenges that have been around for decades centuries in some cases uh, from a systemic standpoint and and then you have to navigate a very complex set of rules and structures and, and so on it's it was you know the decks being stacked against first nations for a very long time on this question on how to uh, provide drinking water to, to local residents yeah it, it's incredibly complex it's being underfunded of course it's been completely off of radar screens in in many successive governments to learn more about why so many marginalized and racialized communities within Canada face such issues, we spoke with Dr. Ingrid Waldron, an associate professor at Dalhousie University and author of the book, There's Something in the Water, which dives deep into the topic of environmental racism and provides many case studies of communities around Nova Scotia that face such water issues. We started out by asking her to define environmental racism. The main one would be it's, it refers to the disproportionate siting and placement of in polluting industries and environmentally dangerous projects in Indigenous communities and racialized communities and low-income white communities in certain cases. And then the second part of that is that that happens through environmental policy. So it doesn't just happen. It happens through the decisions that are made by people in power. And it happens through environmental policies, but also environmental assessments, EAs, as we call them. An EA is a tool that's used to make a decision about where industry gets placed in collaboration with the industry partner. The other part of the definition is the fact that these are communities that, that experience slow rates of cleanup. That's the other part of the definition of environmental racism, that these are communities that often find that it takes a long time for the government to hear them, to respond to them. And the final aspect of the definition of environmental racism is that it's allowed to manifest over time precisely because what, what we see in these ENGOs or regulatory bodies or commissions are not people who are most impacted. You know, I've served on some of these boards and indigenous communities and black people aren't on those boards. So if you're not hearing from the people who are most impacted, you're not hearing about their priorities, their concerns, then environmental racism will manifest intergenerationally because people are not hearing about the solutions that are coming from the people who are impacted. It's not that these ENGOs are 
doing that on purpose or that they're malicious or malevolent. They just sometimes find it difficult to engage impacted communities. I've seen it. Many of them try. They try to conduct outreach to these communities, but they often fail. And there's probably something around the messaging that they're using, or maybe they're expecting the communities to come to them as opposed to these organizations going to those communities, but they're missing the mark in some way. And that means that environmental racism manifests over time. If you can hear more from the people who are impacted, we might intervene on some of the kind of approaches that we're using that perhaps aren't capturing the hearts and minds of communities that are most impacted, who actually could help us solve some of the problems through their knowledges, through their perspectives. So that's another often forgotten aspect of environmental racism, the definition of it. Dr. Waldron also highlighted the importance of understanding how the experience of environmental racism intersects with gender. I think with environmental racism, we need definitely an intersectional framework. People are talking about intersectionality a lot right now. I think it's great because everything is intersectional, particularly environmental racism. We, as you and I just discussed, it's about race, it's about class, it's about socioeconomic status, but it's also about gender. Um, And for me, it's about gender in two ways. The first way is that the impacts on the body is very gendered. The pathways through which contaminants impact the body is gendered. Men will experience health issues related to environmental racism in specific ways based on their sex, their biology, the physical aspects of their gender that we can see. And women will experience it in a different way. So women will experience it in terms of high rates of reproductive illnesses. And when we intersect gender with race, We can say that indigenous women specifically, those that are close to environmental hazards, but just indigenous women in general in Canada have higher rates of reproductive cancers and reproductive illnesses than other communities, right? So that's a very obvious way in which gender must be included in how we articulate environmental racism and its health impacts. But the other way is organizing. What I've noticed over the years is that It is women who are on the front lines of environmental justice organizing. And in the beginning, I didn't really understand why. So I asked an Indigenous woman and I said, why is it that I'm only seeing women? (laughs) And I said, maybe slightly frustrated, where are the men? And I think she was insulted by my question because I didn't know that this is part of Indigenous culture. And she said to me, she said, Ingrid, we are the life givers. We give birth as women. So it is our responsibilities to protect the land and the water for future generations. This is simply part of our culture. And I was like, that makes sense. So when I think about gender, I think of reproductive illness and the health impacts, but I also think about the specific ways in which black and indigenous women have been involved in grassroots movements, whether or not it's part of their culture or not, gender comes to the fore because that's what we're finding that black women, indigenous women are leading on many of these initiatives, risking their lives in many instances, going to court and really struggling against some of these issues. With, of course, their men supporting them in other ways. As the woman said to me, she said, our men are there, Ingrid, our men are there. They're just supporting us in other ways. Uh, But we're on the front lines because we are the life givers. So for me, that's how gender is implicated in this topic of environmental racism. One of the big ways that Dr. Waldron is trying to tackle environmental racism has to do with the Environmental Noxiousness, Racial Inequities, and Community Health Project, or ENRICH. So in terms of the ENRICH project, it's about shining a spotlight 
on water contamination in these communities and trying to connect them with partners through my research to address water contamination in tangible ways. But there's also another aspect to what I do, which is the NGO I co-founded in 2017 called Rural Water Watch, which actually evolved out of the Enrich Project. I see the Enrich Project as primarily engaged in political activism, community mobilizing, advocacy, legislation, social action. I co-founded Rural Water Watch simply to address water contamination issues. I didn't want to get the two organizations confused or doing the same type of work. So there's nothing about the Rural Water Watch that's about civil disobedience or political action. It's solely about how do we address the concerns of communities in an immediate and tangible way. And that is about water contamination. So through that NGO Rural Water Watch, I have paired up with a geologist and other environmental scientists, as well as environmental science students and community members who are on our board to address water contamination in their communities. We're doing this by conducting water testing projects that we do at no cost, that we engage communities in. So we actually also build community members or homeowners capacity to test their own water. We are simultaneously are training students to do water testing. We write a report on our results. We go back to the community. We share the results with them. We do workshops. We talk about the link between water contamination. This is groundwater contamination, I should mention, and health. And we just started a new project, Annual Healthy Wells Day, which we started on October 18th of this year. It's both online and an in-person awareness raising campaign to educate people about the need to take care of their well. That a healthy well is always a good idea. An unhealthy well can lead to various health issues. So we're doing that every year. And I'm really proud of this NGO because I'm somebody who likes to provide immediate tangible results to communities. Research can be tangible if you're using research in the right way. So through Enrich, I do research, but for me, this NGO is even more immediate because sometimes you gotta wait for the research findings and the results and to disseminate it, and that could take more than a year, of course. With this, we can immediately say to community members, this is what's in your water. We can tell them immediately. We can write a report and share it with them. And what we try to do too, as I said, through our workshops is to actually educate them on how to manage their drinking water sources right in immediate ways one of the best things that came out of the enrich project in 2016 i hired a uh, he's now a phd student to create that map of course he had expertise in gis analysis but he also had expertise in health geography the map shows how indigenous communities are clustered close to some of these sites pulp and paper mills landfills and incinerators on one layer of the map and then on the other layer you've got African Nova Scotian communities so it's really kind of convincing information right there on that map and people look at that map and they think okay I, I guess there's something going on here so the cases are right on there you can look at the names of the communities and many of the communities indicated on the map are the communities that I'm working with that are right now addressing or confronting cases of environmental racism. Those communities in Canada, let's say in Nova Scotia, Sabaganagany First Nation, 
Pictou Landing First Nation, Lincolnville, Shelburne. But across Canada, cases of environmental racism include Wet'suwet'en First Nation in British Columbia, Chemical Valley, impacting Amjinwang First Nation near Sarnia, Ontario. They're dealing with over 60 petrochemical facilities surrounding that community. They have high rates of cancer and high rates of reproductive illnesses. You've got grassy narrows. I document them all in my book. And you know, I give cases of environmental racism in BC, in Saskatchewan, in Ontario. So this is real. We've heard a lot about the necessity of working with Indigenous communities to make sure that any solutions implemented to try to alleviate water inaccessibilities are culturally informed and genuinely fit the needs of the community. To address this concern, Dr. Moseni and his colleagues at Rezo have developed a community circle model for innovation. Well, the community circle model that we have developed along the way in the past decade or so that uh, we've been working with indigenous communities in collaboration with them is actually developed through this collaboration uh, with a lot of insights from uh, our indigenous partners. What it does, it creates an ecosystem for open innovation. So if I basically elaborate on that is all parties that are involved in the process, community partners, including residents, water operators, elders, the leadership of the community. They come together with those other stakeholders from industry, government, and researchers, academia, to create a solution that can be implemented. And when the community is involved, as I mentioned, eventually, not only they will own it, but they work towards keeping it and making sure that it stays successful. It never fails. And in many communities, we have seen that when the community is not involved, they don't own it. And eventually that leads to failure of the technology or the solution. So that ownership is essential component of it. And once that happens, the community maintains it. Not only that, now they have the knowledge, they have the skill sets to actually help other communities, other neighboring communities, towards developing their own solutions. So a successful community can not only be a good example, but they can also be an advocate. They can share the knowledge. They can mobilize that knowledge and bring it to other communities as well. From your work at Rezo and your engagement in these community circle meetings, what insights did you gain about designing water treatment facilities specifically for non-urban and First Nation communities as opposed to big cities? In a large city, the operators are often more equipped with the training. There are more operators involved. Also, these large cities, because of the tax base they have and the, the funding they have, the access to support and resources they have, they are able to utilize various technologies in order to monitor their their treatment system. The second advantage they have, they are closer to the supply chain. Whether is need for equipment, whether replacement equipment, even chemical supplies, they can get them easily. But in a remote setting, if we think about indigenous communities, some of them are flying communities. They, They may be inaccessible for parts of the year as well. So they are not close to supply chain. If a pump fails in a very remote community, 
it takes weeks if not months for it to be repaired or you get a replacement part so that's a big challenge for them the second thing is that as i mentioned the operator is doesn't have access to a lot of support and training opportunities so the technology that needs to be implemented in a small setting is going to have a totally different attributes um, and characteristics it needs to be able to be more robust it shouldn't fail very often it should be something that does not require constant involvement of an operator because the operator is not there or sometimes cannot attend the treatment system for about a week or so so it needs to be somehow what we call it passive it, it needs to run on its own as opposed to having somebody watch it either using a sensor or in person for dr moseni these insights from community circle meetings have allowed him to engineer new water technology systems that can feasibly function in communities that lack access to water so a couple of technologies that we are working on as example one of them what we call is biological ion exchange so it basically tapping into biology tapping into the nature in order to be able to remove some of the contaminants that are there simply put something like a brita filter for example you have if you have that filter you just pour the water it just filters the water and removes the contaminants so expand that to a larger scale and that filter is run such that you allow for microbes to grow inside that filter and those microbes are such that they can remove some of the contaminants of interests that we have in our water so it's a very passive wave you all you need is just to make sure that the water flows constantly at a certain flow rate and the rest biology can take care of it what we rely on is the natural consortium of organisms that can grow and are perhaps initially present in our environment but we allow them to grow basically develop within our filter so that natural consortium when you feed them with the water that contains your contaminants they generally slowly grow under the right conditions and that will be sufficient for us to achieve the target removal that we want of those contaminants literally biological process that can run on their own without really needing a lot of chemicals to be added as i mentioned chemical supply chain is a very significant challenge for a lot of remote communities so if we can eliminate that as much as possible this is an advantage for us bringing chemicals whether it's chlorine or whether it's any other chemical to a very remote community is going to be challenged because these are often hazardous substances that cannot be easily transported do these innovations and technologies ever make it out of the lab in a very remote indigenous community about 2 years ago in fact that community had been on boil water advisory for 14 years and for the first time we we applied this technology in that community it was actually the community's desire to get that technology because the government and engineering companies proposed so many different solutions and every time the challenges associated with those solutions were presented to the community it was clear that it was no go so the community had been sort of without any solution 
And once we presented that solution to the community, they said, we want this. And they went ahead and they applied it. We did some piloting there. The result was great. And we went ahead and implemented that. And ever since, the community is having clean water. Uh, came off boil water advisory, as I mentioned, after 14 years. The consulting industry, which was part of this process, actually received five different national awards, including the most prestigious ones uh, among all different categories by the Association of Consulting Engineers of Canada. So that goes back to what I mentioned in terms of the, the role that the community circle can play. So everyone in that particular project felt that they are a winner. They achieved the goal. The community got off boil water advisory. They have clean water. The consulting engineering, which was part of it, they received awards because they were able to apply and implement that innovative solutions. They, they could be part of this one. As researchers, we could take pride of the fact that something that was developed in our labs was implemented for the first time, solving a real problem. The government could take the credit, the fact that they, they helped solve that particular problem that had been in place for 14 years. So basically, everyone felt the winner, and that was a success. Water First utilizes education and collaborative partnerships as a tool to address the water challenges facing the Indigenous communities they work with. We work with First Nations communities, Indigenous communities uh, in Canada that are experiencing water challenges, and we help to address water challenges through education, training, and meaningful collaboration. I really want to, you know, emphasize that training and education piece. It's the core of what we do. It's wherever possible, hiring and training local young Indigenous adults to support project implementation and to do it in such a way where we're playing a role, but we really hope that at the end of a project there is enhanced capacity at the local level, that there are young Indigenous adults that are highly employable with recognized skills that are important to communities. And, and our communities, community partners from coast to coast to coast are, are telling us that there are challenges to uh, recruit and fill positions and recruit young Indigenous adults to the, the water sciences and that there are amazing individuals at the community level doing really important work with the resources that they have, but that, that often they need more help. They need more uh, young, young Indigenous adults entering the field to, to support those initiatives. Can you tell us a little bit more about the programs and initiatives run by Water First? I'll refer to our, our flagship program, which is the, the Water First Internship. It's a drinking water internship initiative. We partner with tribal councils with this initiative. That way we leverage the connectivity between the, the communities, their collaborative capacities and so on, uh, which are already in place through their affiliation at a tribal council level. We will try to get an understanding of the lay of the land in the tribal council and their member communities in terms of how many operators are there, where are they in their sort of professional cycle, are they near retirement, are there succession plans, how many communities only have one operator and that operator can't basically leave the community for more than 24 hours and often hasn't done so for over a year because they can't leave the water plant unattended. Just what's the lay of the land in terms of local capacity? Because that's really what we do. And so we, we get a sense of like, okay, are, are the member communities experiencing challenges that training will solve? 
and that's that's the the most important thing to to get a, a very clear understanding of. Once we're there and we understand that that's the case, then we engage you know even more sort of closely with the technical staff, water treatment plant operators. We will do this through their the local tech services, and those are the individuals at the tribal council who support water treatment plants who support infrastructure in the communities and projects of, of that nature. And we engage, we support as well, the, a really important piece is supporting the communities to identify young Indigenous adults who may be interested in the training opportunity. Within a few months, they then have a, a skilled apprentice kind of thing at the plant that can support its ongoing operations under their leadership, on, under their supervision. But the, the interns become skilled assets uh, to the water treatment plants. And, and whether they continue working in water treatment or often, you know, we've, we've seen that there's environmental prospects as well, working for the local tribal council in, in their environmental department or a neighboring First Nation in the environmental coordination field uh, and water sampling and, and, and so on. That, that's what we've seen happen. And when we align the training service with communities that have challenges that training will solve, then what we see is a very strong uptake. And those young trainees that come into the program with their certifications and, and a lot of uh, hands-on experience, uh, they're snapped up pretty quick. They're highly employable. And, and off to the, the field they go as, as young professionals begin, beginning their careers in the water sciences. So what does success look like for Water First? It's seeing young Indigenous adults enter the field of water science, of whether that's drinking water or environmental water. It's seeing uh, those young Indigenous adults like work really hard and eventually get that uh, certification. And then they're in a position where they are able to support their communities. And in you know, this context, as crazy as it is, it's, it's amazing that in you know, many non-Indigenous communities, your, your local water treatment plant operator isn't necessarily you know, held up and regarded as, as much as they should be uh, as, as a hero. Yet in a, in a First Nation community that, uh, whose water quality is, has been in question for some time, um, to, to be a part of the provision of clean, safe drinking water to a, a community is a, a really commendable and an amazing position to, to hold. It's a lot of responsibility and, and, and it's, it's, it's highly regarded to be safeguarding your community's health and well-being. So it's, it's amazing to see those, those things happen. Um, and it's amazing to get to know some of the, some of the individuals. Uh, Eric Vautour, who was recently just chatting with us last week on a, on a public online event that we hosted. And he's, he's a graduate of the training program on Manitoulin Island. He's from Shigwenda First Nation. And when he heard about the training opportunity, and, and we were advertising quite, uh, you know, broadly, he was living in Sudbury and, and was the, you know, he shared with us just last week, he was having some, some challenges, um, you know, in, in, his, in his personal life and kind of where he was headed. And, and he hadn't graduated from high school yet and so on, but he applied to the training opportunity. Um, and he, he said, you know, I don't have my high school diploma, but I'll, I'll, I'll get it. And it's a prerequisite because you're, your certifications don't stick unless you have this, uh, your high school diploma. Um, anyway, fast forward, he just knocked it out of the park. He rolled up those sleeves. He worked really, really hard. There were, were 14 uh, participants in the program at the beginning, and he, he, was, he was voted in as the valedictorian was able to support his uh, community's uh, water treatment plant. And it, it's, it's, you know, it's stories like that that are, that are really cool to, to see unfold. So how might someone listening to our podcast episode right now help improve the disproportionate effects that water-related issues have on Indigenous communities? 
I think it's really important to to ensure that the attention on this issue in in Canada with First Nations communities that that it doesn't go away. Yeah, it's trending in the right direction. You know, when we get a, a good look at the numbers, it was one in five First Nations that couldn't drink their water in 2015 when the Liberals came to power. You know, and and just like you know, six months ago, it was uh, one in six, right? It was it was 17 percent. And then more recently, it's looking like it's one in seven and it's, it's 13, 14%. You know, so it's, it's trending in the right direction. But I, I, would, I would advocate that we, we not let the attention fall off of this issue until it's fully addressed and sustainably so. So 5%, you know, it's, it's still a 5% too many of First Nations communities that can't drink their water. 1% is too many. We, we need to, to stay focused and, and keep the attention on the issue, should very much be in the spotlight. And at the same time, I think, as I was saying earlier, um, infrastructure is, is a necessary component of the, of the problem, but it's by no means the only uh, piece of it. So I, I'm, I'm actually fearful of the day that should it come to pass, I certainly hope it does, that the federal government can say like, okay, the infrastructure is good, like check. All, all communities under a long-term boil water advisory and there should also be the communities that are under short-term boil water advisories, that those boil water advisories have been lifted and, and, and they're, they're, they're sorted. But as I was saying, the infrastructure is, is a necessary but not sufficient component of what is involved in the output of clean water. It's people, it's people that run those water treatment plants. And it's really critical that we stay focused on that to safeguard the, the sustainability that we, we, we do not want to see First Nations having clean water tomorrow. And then the, the day after or down the road, five years later, uh, they're on a boil water advisory again, because we haven't invested enough in the, the local uh, supporting the local individuals who run the plants. And, and making sure they have adequate uh, supports uh, to do so. I, I really uh, uh, hope that there's, there's a, a, a more broad perspective on what it takes to produce reliable and sustainable clean water in First Nations communities. Another way to tackle this issue is through policy changes. Dr. Waldron spoke to us about a federal bill to address environmental racism that she has been working on for a while. In terms of what's happening across Canada, I would say the bill is key. The bill is a federal bill called the National Strategy to Address Environmental Racism. MP Lenore Zan is putting it forward to second reading on December 3rd. She says to me that she's gotten a lot of support. I mean, she got we got support from uh, David Suzuki. He wrote an article about it and the need to support it. Former Green Party leader Elizabeth May has supported it. Various people in the party Liberal Party has supported it. So we're looking for widespread support. In terms of your audience, there's lots they can do. I have, I've made everything easy for the public. You can go onto the website, the Enrich website. There's a tab right there, which is a campaign that I'm organizing. I've crafted a letter that you can send out to Justin Trudeau, the Health Minister of Canada, the Environmental Minister, and other MPs. I, I I give you some of their emails, but I also have a link to all the emails, phone numbers, addresses to all the MPs. I've crafted tweets that you can use. I've kind of made it, my goal was to make it easy for the public so they don't have to scratch their head and think, oh, what should I say, right? You can modify it if you want, but it's all there. So what I would really love the public to do is send an email to Justin Trudeau, everyone else on the website, asking them to approve this bill. I'd like them to send the letter to their friends and family members and ask them to do the same. I'd like you to tweet out 
I've got the, as I said, the tweets crafted there. I've got the Twitter handles for Justin Trudeau and the health minister. And I, if it's not there, then I provided a link to all the Twitter handles and Facebook pages for the MPs. This is really about the MPs. We need to target the MPs mostly. And of course, Justin and others. So we really need that support now. I'd like you to CC me on that. Lenore Zan on it as well when you send it out. So this is the first sitting in December. And then March is the second sitting. So I think based on what Lenore told me, getting support before March, like it's important now, but leading up to March is the most important because that's when the final decision will be made. So if you could get people to mobilize around it before March, that would be great. Water is a basic necessity for human survival. But as we learned, global water access and availability are changing at an alarming rate with climate change playing a significant role. Additionally, marginalized communities and regions, especially indigenous communities, are disproportionately affected by water insecurity and contamination. Although adequate technology is an integral component, the immense potential and proven benefits lie in collaboratively working with communities directly through education and programming. A very special thanks to our guests, Dr. Jay Familietti, Dr. Ingrid Waldron, Dr. Majid Moseni, and Mr. John Miller for speaking with us and sharing their insights. And of course, thank you for listening. This episode was hosted by myself, Colleen, and as well as Yagnesh. Rachel and Seth helped conduct the interviews, and Stefania helped develop content. Yagnesh was our executive producer, CJ was our photographer, and Helen was our audio engineer. Be sure to check out our next episode in two weeks, where we explore tuberculosis and other preventable diseases. Until next time, keep it raw. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. Thank you.